This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. In today's episode, we meet Rob Santos, Chief Methodologist at the Urban Institute and incoming president of the American Statistical Association. We're going to talk about the drama surrounding the 2020 census and to discuss career options for those who wish to take their research skills down a non-academic path. I am very happy in this episode to introduce my co-host Joshua De La Rosa, a data scientist who's worked for Census, at SRBI, and now New York City. He is an adjunct faculty member in Queens College's data analytics program and a great mind for all things applied. We're thrilled to have you today, Josh. Rob Santos on the Census and Applied Careers, coming up next. Uh, today, we are here with uh, my colleague, Josh De La Rosa, and we have a very special guest, somebody who I'm very ex- uh, excited to talk to. Rob Santos is the vice president, uh, is the vice president and chief methodologist at the Urban Institute. Is that right? Uh, did I get that right, Rob? Uh, that's correct. And he is incoming president of the American Statistical Association. And he's uh, the president in a very interesting time, I guess, where uh, statisticians are all of a sudden politically relevant. Uh, I guess they always are, right? In particular. So we wanted to talk about, there's so much to talk about with Rob today, the Urban Institute, applied careers, and of course, the big issue Uh, the census. So there's plenty to talk about. Would you like to start off maybe, Rob, by giving us a little bit of background? I'm sure a lot of our listeners know of the Urban Institute. It's well known, but some might not. Can you start by maybe telling us a little bit about the Urban Institute? Uh, Certainly. The Urban Institute uh, was founded in 1967 uh, by Lyndon Johnson uh, and Rob McNamara. Uh, It's been around with a mission to essentially fight poverty in uh, America. Uh, It is uh, composed of about a dozen different substantive research centers, each of which um, takes as its own a specific policy area, be it criminal justice, health policy, um, labor and, uh, you know, metro and housing issues, um, uh, nonprofit organizations and philanthropy and so forth. Uh, And uh, we conduct studies uh, that are uh, a a large portion funded by foundations, uh, but also we do our fair share of federal contract and uh, uh, some NIH grant work as well. Uh, We have about 500 people, and uh, I happen to have the honor of overseeing the statistical methods group, which allows me to play in the field uh, or play in the backyards of all these different research centers, and we work together. And more recently, we've uh, discovered, I'd say over the last five years, the benefits of cross-fertilization and uh, examining policy issues as um, necessarily integrated um, uh, integrated challenges of housing and employment and education and children and families, et cetera, and health, as opposed to let's look at a specific issue in poli- in health policy, or let's look at a specific issue in education. Uh, so we're, we've been doing a lot more of this integrated cross-cutting 
uh, lens work, uh, as, including uh, issues of racial equity, um, as opposed to, um, uh, or in addition to our classic um, substantive work in specific areas. So what's a normal day like being a chief methodologist? Uh, it's actually uh, pretty exciting. I'm uh, at an executive level. So um, the chief methodologist here uh, has, <laughs> I, I just got off a call uh, uh, for the salary committee because we're doing annual appraisals. And I head up a, a group that's overseeing uh, promotions from like a, a research assistant or analyst to the next level, to an analyst or research associate. I do some of that work. Um, I do a lot of uh, community engagement work. I'm co-leading co the community engagement group, uh, which takes uh, uh, existing research and promotes the use of, of uh, engaging and bringing the voice of community members into the interpretation, the planning, even setting some of the research questions if we have that luxury and time um, uh, to look at that. Uh, so the typical day involves work with with some administrative stuff, as well as project work. I'm, I'm a co-PI on a number of projects, uh, one of which is the annual survey of refugees by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which has a mandate to uh, annually report to Congress on how uh, refugees in the program are faring um, in terms of economic self-sufficiency and other, other types of things. So I'm, I'm working as a copy eye on that, uh, as I do a lot of census miscount work. Uh, Diana Elliott and I and uh, Steve Martin uh, work to create some um, projections uh, of what life would be like under three different scenarios after a 2020 census in terms of net undercounts of different populations and the U.S. overall. Um, and uh, we and because of that. I've been uh, getting a lot of media uh, requests. So on a daily basis, I, I, or maybe weekly basis is more, more appropriate. Um, I'm, um, I'm doing interviews with, uh, with folks uh, from all over the, the country on these types of things, including podcasts and, and things of that sort. Uh, I do a lot of ASA work now that I'm president elect. Um, that includes a lot, uh, a bit of advocacy for the statistical community. Uh, things like uh, questioning uh, the appointment of three uh, politicos uh, to the Census Bureau late in the game during the census. Um, issues like uh, the diversion of, um, of data from hospitals on COVID cases from CDC, which is historically the, the recipient of this because that's their job uh, to, and the, uh, we're, we're voicing concerns over the, the transmission of that uh, information over to HHS instead. Um, so an, a, a typical day involves looking at some of those issues and getting involved in, in dialogue as to what we can do. Uh, I work with uh, advocacy and other communities on what the response might be to the 2020 census if in fact it ends up uh, having issues or how we can promote them and maximize uh, participation uh, in the few days that we have left. Um, and I do things even like fire, I'm a copy on a firefighter safety and deployment, big data application where uh, we uh, take 
the collection over five years of all fire and EMS incidents, look, uh, superimpose um, the census demographic information and other information to come up with a community risk profile uh, so that when it's time for, um, for mayors and city councils to decide whether they're gonna cut stations or funding for fire departments, the fire departments can actually speak with a voice, a real data voice and say, if you do that, the risk uh, of uh, either a firefighter injury or civilian injury will go up or down or, you know, here's where we are. Um, so those are the types of things I'm involved in. It's a great hodgepodge. <laughs> uh, it's very exciting. Life never ends. Uh, there's always something to do. Yeah, no, for me, full disclosure, I, uh, I'm an applied researcher. And I not only think that's important, but I also uh, find your work, uh, the level of rigor being important, but the specific work that you're doing is important. So I've actually used the Urban Institute's work, cited the work on um, public charge and uh, the chilling effect. So I believe there was a research on that one in five families said that they would not seek the benefits that they're entitled to out of fear fear for uh, their immigration status. And that um, it's I, what I find yeah. is the level of rigor used for that methodology not to push a certain agenda allowed us to understand what is a possible impact of the public charge and also the misinformation or the chilling effect around it um because if there's not uh, actually rigorous methods around it it's just actually not research it's actually just pushing information um so for coming from a, a, an applied researcher perspective i think that's actually really important that we have rigorous methods um, informing policy, but I just wanted to follow up. How do you how do you discuss with your colleagues that may be in an academic setting uh, the benefits or the cons about being in an applied setting as opposed to being in an academic setting? Well, for uh, I'd say for for most of my career, I've been in academically based research settings at at Michigan, at ISR Michigan, at uh, University of Chicago's NORC. Um, so, uh, and at Temple University's uh, Institute for Survey Research, which is my first job. Uh, so I, I fully get the need uh, for scholarship in the area of uh, social, applied social research. Uh, my, um, my passions though, were to be closer to the ground in terms of actually helping people. And that's what drew me to the Urban Institute because of their specific mission uh, to do that. Uh, so that going down the hallways rather than saying, oh, you know, we need to do this study because uh, there's a gap in research on this specific area and I can get some great research articles and tenure. Um, instead, I was drawn more towards walking down the hall and hearing conversations that, oh, Congress is taking up this bill or the Supreme Court uh, is going to be hearing this case. Let's do what we need to do for an amicus brief to help inform, uh, or you know, let's uh, put in some research that's relevant to the legislation or to whatever debates going on, so that so that people are uh, data driven, you know, using evidence based research rather than um, uh, rather than than uh, doing other uh, you know other scholarly efforts. I think both are necessary and both are needed. Uh, but where my heart is, is towards the applied, uh, using statistical tools, sociological and psychological and other types of theories to, to mix them together and apply them to, group, to gain insight into how we can better 
um, change society, evolve society. Can I can I follow up on this? Sure, Robert. It's 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 great to have you. You know, present you to our listeners in part because I think we have a lot of early career researchers who. You know, you get so strongly socialized to aspire to become a professor or an academic, and a lot of them just, you know, they can't imagine not starting a career in the academy. You know, it, it might be uh, something that, you know, makes them feel a little fraught, a little bit distressed. Uh, and uh, part of the great thing about bringing you in is is, is to uh, give our listeners an example of like somebody who's very, very successful and very, very high impact who isn't doing it as a university professor. And I wanted to know, can you offer some words of encouragement to young people who might be saying, oh, my life is over. I have no chance of getting on the tenure track. You know, what is there for me out there? Do you have any type of words of encouragement or? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. The the first thing I'll say though is, and I, I hear I I hate to be um, a little bit of a you know uh, a predictor of storms in the future, but I am convinced that with the uh, current uh, COVID epidemic, uh, the fact that it's probably going to last for at least another year, if not longer, and that when we're all over, all is said and done, it, we will be managing. Um, these types of public health issues as a society rather than it's over and we can get back to normal. You know, there will be no normal the way it was before. Yeah. <clears throat> and that has deeply affected academia because uh, as, as we are now seeing, there is a movement more towards online uh, education. And as time goes on, people will become acclimated to that uh, there still may be a mix, but there's going to be a much stronger presence in online education than there has been in the past. And that's going to impact the, the paradigm, uh, the concept of what a university is, uh, because the, the, literally the types of tuition that could be uh, asked for under the old, uh, you know, come to class in person, um, scenario will no longer exist. And the, I think that the, the business model of a university is going to be, need to change to one that has, um, that has you know, uh, fewer tenured professors. Um, once you go online, you can draw from talent all over the world. Mm -hmm. And um, that suggests maybe a lot more lecturers as opposed to tenured professors. Um, and, and so I, uh, my first words are to be realistic about your place in academia or anyone's place, even tenured, <laughs> tenured faculty. Uh, yeah. You know, life is going to change. Uh, some universities will be closing. Uh, many will be challenged, but we're, they're going to have to figure out what life is, what a different life is now and what that means in terms of your configuration of faculty and staff. Now, you might think that that's uh, a threat, but I actually see it as an opportunity. Folks who currently might not might think, hey, I can't be a tenured professor, will suddenly have much more opportunity to get involved in teaching and providing uh, mentorship to, to students through online and virtual methods. Uh, at the same time, there is an explosion of need 
uh, for re applied researchers in, um, in research centers across the country, uh, in, uh, uh, in nonprofit organizations. For example, I've had a, a relationship with Feeding America for 13 years on its uh, technical advisory group. They have grown a very robust uh, research group and uh, they're not the only ones. There are other, other nonprofit organizations that are looking to do evidence-based decision-making, which means you need a researcher and not just someone who can crunch numbers, someone who can get in, understand the groups that, are, that, are, that have needs that need to be helped, develop conceptual frameworks, do the necessary qualitative research to flesh that out, to then build a, a logic model and a program to help them do the proper program evaluation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's needs all over. Okay. And the, there are genuine opportunities to get into research centers, to public policy think tanks like Urban Institute or Brookings or Heritage, if that's your ilk, um, or other types of organizations. Um, uh, or and or even get into groups like Google or Facebook or you know the high tech companies. They are longing for good applied social science researchers uh, so that they can understand uh, their their consumer base and and help provide for them more, and also do some some of the really tough things that they're dealing with, like you know what is privacy in this world of social media. How do we better uh, protect against, you know, bots and things of that sort? All of those have uh, necessary applied statistics and applied sociological and applied psych psychology, et cetera, ties to um, uh, that offer opportunity for mm -hmm. folks that are that are getting out. It's also like you know, I I I often uh, you know talk to to Josh who is. Uh, doing applied work and you know in a lot of respects our days seem very similar you know it's like it's it's still a day of crunching data and going to meetings and training young people and you know you you get your upper middle class lifestyle and yelling, I think a lot of yelling at your computer yeah <laughs> and and it's also i think a lot of people lowball how much mindless bureaucrat bureaucratic work is involved in the academy too you know it's not not like we're all just hanging around in togas talking about big ideas. There's a lot of form <laughs> filing and committee work in that too. Should we pivot to the uh, census now? Uh, one more question. One more question. Uh, so one of the the values, uh, obviously, being at a, at a academic institution is contributing to new innovation and research. Uh, does Urban offer the ability to actually conduct uh, research on research or uh, innovation? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we. Uh, are uh, continually uh, adopting or, or uh, leveraging things like uh, data science to create new tools to look at society in different ways. Uh, the Firefighter Project does that. Uh, we just uh, pushed out a, um, uh, a feature that prioritize, that helps identify areas in the U.S. Uh, that are in need of rent assistance that came up today at the Urban Institute that, that leverages big data uh, analytics to do that. Um, so, so there are many opportunities to, uh, to do R&D types of activities 
Um, we have uh, uh, Claire Bowen, uh, one of our uh, superstar uh, st young statisticians, uh, is uh, in the, the data science group at Urban, and she's looking at privacy issues. Um, uh, we just uh, finished, I think we're at the tail end uh, of uh, a data synthesis R&D where we took the actual uh, SOI forms, source of income forms, uh, which are basically the 1040s from the IRS, and uh, created a synthetic version of them uh, and then applied data privacy protocols for this. All of that was brand spanking new stuff that that could just as easily been done in an academic setting, but it's being done in the Urban Institute. And other research centers like, you know, Mathematica and uh, APT Institute and RTI and NORC and Westat, they're all doing the same thing. There's lots of opportunities for groundbreaking research uh, in, uh, in the non-academic sector. So I, I think one of the values that professional associations have is being an advocate for uh, the science and being an objective advocate for the science. So the American Statistical Association has been at the forefront advocating for an objective and rigorous and valid uh, 2020 census. Uh, so starting backwards, uh, one of the things that the American Statistical Association has sounded the alarm on uh, was the um, adding of the citizenship question to the 2020, cens uh, 2020 census form. Thinking about uh, the 2020 census and starting there, could you talk about uh, uh, the citizenship question and why uh, the American Statistical Association felt they needed to join the other associations and commenting on why that may be uh, an issue to the 2020 uh, census? Uh, certainly, that that goes way back. I mean, that's like really old history. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every day we seem to have a new challenge to the census yeah. that's coming about. <laughs> but back, way back then, um, uh, the American Statistical Association understood that uh, a basic, you know, tenet of the Constitution and of democracy is conducting the decennial census. It's called for. So the Census Bureau uh, needs to have uh, as many levers and tools to implement that in an, an unfettered fashion as possible. Uh, the introduction of a citizenship question during a time when they when the um, policy climate uh, was being um, inundated with uh, anti-immigrant policies uh, suggested that um, that it would have an impact on uh, people's willingness to participate in the census. In fact, the Census Bureau's own research on this uh, concluded that, in fact, it, there would be a problem if the citizenship question was asked. Um, and that's not even, I'm not even going to touch the reasons for trying to insert a citizenship question. That's, that's more political, and you don't, we don't even need that. All we need to know is that in the, in the environment at the time, the notion that a citizenship question would be inserted into the decennial census, uh, we knew and everyone in the research world knew was going to have a chilling effect on, the, uh, on certain households and their willingness to participate. And that was enough of an alarm and a, a super large alarm 
that we basically said, no, this, we can't have this. <laughs> Um, can I can, can I just step to recap just for the uh, just for the listeners? So the first the first big problem there, I guess, first big issue that the ASA was dealing with was the citizenship question. And some people were saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, some people were saying, "Oh, if you put a citizenship question in, you're going to make certain people afraid to fill out the form, and then what's going to happen is you're going to have people systematically avoiding." the Census Bureau and being counted in the census. And that could uh, mess up our numbers. Is that the basic thrust of the problem as you understand it? Uh, yes, that's the basic. All right, and then and then what was the next big thing? Because there's been a whole bunch of things, right? That the ASA has been you know, monkey business involving the census. What else were you guys uh, dealing uh, with? Certainly uh, right after that was the CVAP issue. So um, once the Supreme Court said, no, you cannot add a citizenship question uh, then there was a directive uh, from the Commerce uh, Department and White House to generate from administrative records uh, counts of citizens down to the block level. Hmm. And uh, that also was viewed as a move that would um, further chill uh, the, the willingness of individuals, uh, certain individuals, mostly immigrant families, uh, from participating in the census. Um, then uh, after that was the, um, uh, I, I guess we could we could go straight to COVID. Uh, yeah. there was the COVID crisis or the, the epidemic uh, basically led to, and the uncertainty associated with that led to the, the Census Bureau halting and postponing uh, the um, uh, census operations in the field. And that lasted for about a month. They rescheduled it. And in light of the, the COVID epidemic, uh, they requested uh, an extension of the census uh, to so that the, the counts wouldn't have to be submitted at the end of December, but rather at the end of uh, April of next year. The White House uh, famously had a news conference where they said, we shouldn't even have to ask for this. Of course, let's let's extend. Uh, the um, Congress basically was in line to make that type of approval. Plans were made. Uh, the Census Bureau proceeded, um, and uh, then there was the uh, uh, the now more recent uh, move by the the White House to uh, retain the original timing. So rather than submitting in in April, there the there is a demand now to submit the counts at the end of this year, which meant that now the census had to scramble and shorten their data their field operation period by easily a third. So the the field enumerators, which were scheduled to go out in in uh, beginning of August, still went out the first week of August, but now they have to stop at the end of September instead of the end of October. Uh, the economic crash. And uh, also resulted in, in um, while there's a lot of people out of work, they're also um, in situations where they don't have jobs, they don't have money. The stimulus, a, a large chunk of the most vulnerable people never received the stimulus checks. Um, and uh, now there's, you know, uh, there's rent issues. People are uh, uh, at risk of being evicted. 
And so they have a lot to worry about. There's, there's also the COVID and people are, are um, at home with, with loved ones who are ill or don't want to interact with anyone uh, who they think might have COVID or be asymptomatic and have it. And so the um, two things resulted from that. The first is that the Census Bureau failed to achieve its targets for enumerators going out into the field. So not only do we have a shortened field period, we have a smaller field force of individuals going out and knocking on doors. People are afraid. Uh, they uh, Historically, they drew from retirees. Well, the retirees are at higher risk of COVID and, and at um, uh, some more severe circumstances if they get it. So they were out as a group <laughs> in terms of employment. Um, and other people, you know, with families, they don't have childcare. Uh, they didn't. They didn't uh, apply for the jobs either. So there's a. And then the second thing is that the people that were more severely affected are worrying about uh, getting food on the table, or finding a job, even in a COVID environment, or not getting evicted, uh, or caring for their ill parents. And so they're not in a situation where the first thing on their mind is fulfilling their civic agreement or answering the door if an enumerator knocks. So in, in a real sense, it's sort of the perfect storm of, um, of challenges and risks have, uh, have come to light. Uh, and, um, and then on top of that, there was the hiring uh, and insertion of three high-level political appointees at the Census Bureau. Uh, with no apparent portfolios, um, and what the the more recent one of which is design is designated to be a deputy director of data quality, even though they have uh, virtually no census experience, no in, inside information about how the operation goes, yeah. uh, and yet they're being challenged with. Uh, they're supposed to be part of that process, but they're a political appointee. All of yeah. that screams. Uh, partisan meddling, um, and it is of really high concern to us uh, uh, at ASA. That's concerning. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that is a lot, and that is concerning. Uh, and I would say, as a data user at the census, I think it's uh, not. I think I know it, it's important to have objective data. Whether I, I mean, uh, the, obviously, there's many discussions about apportionment and funding, but there also gets down to the denominator. So uh, COVID is on people's minds a lot, and uh, you need rates, and for rates, you need a denominator. Uh, but could you talk about what was a little bit either your day job or ASA's motivations to actually go out and raise the alarm for some of these issues uh, uh, as to as applied researchers, why you felt the need to discuss these specific issues? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, there, uh, at the Urban Institute, I as a researcher and Diane Elliott and Steve Martin, uh, we recognize the high value of, of the decennial census um, in terms of supporting U.S. society for a decade, as well as being a uh, constitutional you know, mandate and, and part of our democracy. And so we wanted to weigh in uh, and provide information that might be useful to see what's at stake. And that's uh, how we ended up developing, using census research, three different scenarios for what would happen to a decennial census, uh, to a 2020 decennial census, before even COVID or any of these other types of things came about. 
And uh, what we found is that even if the 2020 census had been conducted at the presumably high level of the 2010 census, there would have been a net undercount of uh, African-Americans uh, and uh, Latinos and uh, Native Americans and some Asians and others. Uh, and the reason is because we're becoming a more diverse country. I mean, something we should be celebrating, but the diversity along comes with that is that um, these individuals that are being added to the country and are diversifying and making our country more beautiful are also tend to be harder to count. And um, the, just the volume uh, and magnitude of that and being harder to count would end up resulting in an undercount if the census was conducted at the high level that it was in 2010. Well, all of that is out the windows, guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, with COVID, with all these other challenges. Um, so uh, at, at, at present, we're actually, I'm actually wondering, you know, what can be salvaged? The first thing we have to do is absolutely do all that we can to, to do a grassroots effort to get people who historically are hard to count to participate. And it's not a matter of you know telling an, un, an undocumented immigrant family, oh, go to your computer and sign on to the census because a lot of these folks don't have internet. Mm -hmm. um, they, maybe they, have, they might have a smartphone and maybe they could do it that way, but you really have to get beyond the fear and connect with individuals and talk to them about um, how they help their neighborhoods and how they help each other through participation in the census. And that can only be done with one-on-one with -on -one communications by family, by friends, by community, trusted community stakeholders at the local level and such. So we gotta do that. Uh, the second is then we have to start preparing for what is going to be a flawed census. And the only issue is how flawed is it going to be? Um, there, uh, we already know that because of the shortened data collection, there's gonna be massive imputations that are going on. Imputations occur, imp imputations are basically a fabrication of information of what's in a household. It's, it's fabricated counting, it's estimating. And there's two ways that it's being done, uh, or actually three ways that it's being done. The first is through something that's called proxy interviews. So when an enumerator goes out and knocks on the door and nobody's there, they'll go to the neighbors and say, and knock on their doors. And if they answer, they say, well, who lives in that house over there? And they'll basically, they'll take a completed form from a neighbor who acts as a proxy for the person that didn't, or the household that didn't answer the door. Um, we all know, and census research shows that such proxy information is terrible. Uh, it has a much higher error rate than when somebody responds, a household responds on their own. Um, the second source is going to be administrative records. And uh, the, in order to reduce the workload uh, of the, the field staff, uh, if high quality administrative records exist, they're going to be used to fully impute a household if that household does not answer the door after the first knock. Mm -hmm. uh, but that applies to the set of households that have good administrative records. And we all know that, or 
the, the people that do administrative records research knows that the hardest to count individuals, the most vulnerable, the ones that are being impacted most by COVID, uh, both economically as well as health, uh, from a public health perspective, those are the folks that don't tend to have very good administrative record data, yeah. uh, which means they'll have to be enumerated by proxy or the final method by statistical imputation methods, where basically some type of statistical model is generated either directly or implicitly uh, using administrative records and others to, to basically fabricate a household composition and all the attributes associated with it. Hmm. Uh, so there's going to be a ton. I would, I, at this point, I'm guessing 20 or 30 million households uh, out of, you know, 180 yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that that are going to be imputed in one fashion or another yeah and that's <laughs> that's going to mean there's going to be flaws that's going to mean communities of color are being undercounted net undercounts mm. and that's going to have a whole ripple effect on society so wait two two things that totally got one is on uh these proxy questions like imagine how much a concern is about measurement error when we're soliciting questions from people about themselves, right? Like we we have so much measurement error when we're asking people to surrender personal information that they're presumably like the most knowledgeable about in the world. Imagine how much measurement error is going to go in through this proxy questioning. And then with the imputation models, wow, it's like either you have to set up a model that basically preordains how the population is going to look in some sense, or you're just putting in a bunch of noise. Well, it's a, it's a much more sophisticated than that. <laughs> fact, okay. So tell me. It's so sophisticated that I asked for uh, one time I asked a census official for um, the coefficients of one of their logit models. And yeah. they basically told me that I was too stupid to, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. A, 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 a government worker told the incoming president of the American Statistical Association that like this is so juiced up and smart. Don't even bother, buddy. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm sure they were doing it as part of their due diligence responsibility, but it came off as being brushed off totally. <laughs> well, that, that's, that, that's scary. That, that's like, I mean, like like you said, I, I'm pretty sure that the our, our friends in Suitland had the best intentions, but that's super black boxish. Like, how do you how do you how do you unpack something and how does ever people, I mean, we talk about open data, but I had a friend when I was at the census is like, we should have open code. How do you unpack and in inspect something that you can't even understand and comprehend that it's built on code on code on code. And like, that's the, you know, that's a fear about artificial intelligence and, and machine learning that it's so, it's so complex and, uh, and so opaque that it's, it's very hard to inspect and understand what's actually actually being done. Well, one of the, what's really, really, really interesting is that one of the, uh, in terms of the research we did for the miscounts, we really wanted to do a deep dive into the imputation process. Mm. And it turns out that there is not a lot of research. Mm. The Census Bureau has never validated or has never been willing to be transparent about its validation process of the imputations that it does. Um, and uh, so I, that's a black box 
Um, and uh, it's, I think it's intentionally that way. I, mm-hmm. I think there's something to hide. Of course it is. <laughs> but, of course it is. <laughs> but it is what it is, I guess. <laughs> so so mo- most of our listeners are going to be aware of the fact that things like imputation for the census or proxy questions are problematic, right? But all of us are invariably going to come into contact with someone who's like, okay, you're just some liberal academic who's trying to help the Dems. Who cares if the census misses out on a few people hiding in an apartment or down some old country road? Like, what's the big deal? What do you tell them? Like, how do you explain that to them? Uh, well, the, the big deal is uh, is fairness and equity. So um, one of my original blog posts in uh, the research that I did with the, with the 2020 census was uh, one where I say we need a fair and accurate census, not a complete and accurate census. If you want a complete and accurate census, you do what the Census Bureau is doing, which is to count as many and all of the easy people to count, but not uh, count at the same level of accuracy the people that are harder to count. A fair census would treat everyone much more, households more equally in terms of the pursuit of accuracy of harder, harder to count households versus easier in the sense that when it, when all is said and done, it ends up that, um, uh, and, and it, there's no other way to say it, but um, quite suburban households and populations tend to be accurately or overcounted, but minority communities tend to be under, net undercounted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a direct result of pursuing a complete inaccurate as opposed to a fair inaccurate. A fair inaccurate will put much more resources and much more time in, in diligence into um, uh, counting the harder to count uh, geographies that are so evident. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is go to the self-response uh, uh, map of the Census Bureau and and you can see them. I mean, just look at the Rio Grande Valley and um, in Texas or uh, look at some of the neighborhoods in uh, Chicago or New York or, or Washington, D.C., and you'll see that there there are real disparities, and to the extent that that people don't self-respond, they end up the net result ends up being an undercount in those communities, which means less uh, less uh, political or uh, yeah less political participation or uh, representation than one deserves, and less federal funding that one deserves, and if you go the next step. Uh, it basically is a way that reinforces the structural racism that already exists in in the U.S. Um, These are mechanisms that if you don't approach them right in terms of objective, let's get a fair and accurate count, uh, you end up unwittingly reinforcing some of the mechanisms for structural racism that have existed in the country since its inception. And so that's what really worries me, that we're going to end up with a flawed census, and it's going to be exceedingly flawed for the people that needed to be counted the most. 
And so those are the folks that are not going to get the pol political representation they need. They're not going to get the funding or the infrastructure or the grocery stores or schools or traffic lights uh, or fire stations that they deserve. Whereas other communities are literally going to get more than they deserve. Because when it comes to states pushing out funding, um, uh, when it's distributed basis on population, it's a zero sum game. They, they get the money, states get the money and then they push it out. And if the community wasn't counted properly, they get less than they deserve. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, just being an observer of who's saying what, if you look at who's joined these statements uh, opposing these changes to the 2020 census, uh, corporations or associations representing the, uh, trade associations and corporations have also said, expressed their concerns because they don't want to see more than they need in certain areas as well. Because if you think about uh, the research that they need uh, to support their organizations, they're concerned about having an accurate count as well. So I think that's, mm -hmm. that's a bit concerning that you're, you're seeing allies where you truly don't see allies come together and say, well, we all need uh, objective information, which, you know, I, I, I guess it, it's symptomatic of, of what's going on about where science is today. I just want to double back. We, we've talked about uh, proxy and uh, imputation, but could you talk a little bit, a little bit more for our audience about what administrative records is and, and some of the pros and cons about administrative records? Uh, certainly. Administrative records uh, is what it, uh, what the words say records there or databases that are created typically by but not always by government entities uh, so the the classic ones are the the um, tax records from the irs something called the numident file by the social security administration that you know has everybody's social security information uh, that often includes uh, some indication of citizenship um, the uh, Medicare and Medicaid records from CMS uh, and, um, and others like that. At the state level, uh, that it, it refers more to um, administrative record databases, say, uh, that represent who gets um, SNAP or food stamps, uh, TANF, the you know, emergency uh, funding, uh, CHIS, the, the health insurance stuff, uh, health insurance for kids, um, and, and other types of things, but also including uh, DMV, uh, Department of Motor Vehicle Records, uh, or property records, or things of that sort. Uh, on the commercial side, uh, there are uh, credit bureau uh, databases, you know, from, from the credit bureaus that, uh, that could be tapped. Uh, there are other potential databases, although I don't know that the Census Bureau is actually using some of those. They're pretty much sticking to what they call the high quality databases that end up being social security related uh, or IRS related or maybe Medicare, uh, Medicare, Medicaid uh, related. And uh, those are the ones that they're then using to, to, for the imputation. They're using a lot more administrative records for other types of support activities as opposed to imputation like making sure that there are a list of addresses of households is as complete as possible. Mm -hmm. Or trying to decide um, which households are occupied versus vacant, because that's a big threshold uh, when they get out into the field. They need to decide if, if a household is occupied or vacant, because if it's occupied and they don't get an enumeration from it or a proxy from it, then they have to impute it. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and they also use it for something called count imputation 
where uh, they'll take administrative records and create a prediction of how many people should li uh, live in a household uh, if, it's, uh, if it's occupied, but they don't get a response. And that's always the first step in the multi-step process of imputing a whole household. Can, can I ask a question? So th there's how theoretically this system could work under an amazing scenario, and then there's how they're actually going to do it. Like I could imagine you could get a pretty interesting picture of America if you were to pull together like the whole universe of private data and public data available. On the other hand, I could just as easily see them just pipe over tax records and uh, social security records and say, well, we've done all we can. Uh, like how, how sophisticated is this effort? Uh, uh, it's it's fairly sophisticated. I, I believe they're even using um, satellite photo imagery and uh, AI methods uh, uh, and machine learning to identify rural households that don't have postal addresses. So, mm -hmm. so they're doing they're doing a lot of really sophisticated stuff. Um, it, but the uh, their philosophy, uh, to their credit, has been that they're only going to use the data if it's if they know that it, it is of the um, has the highest level of validity. So they won't use administrative records for imputing a household unless they get the same uh, validation. They do a triage um, uh, or triangulation between the tax records and the social security records and say the CMS records. Um, and that's actually holding them back a little bit because mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're creating holes rather than filling in holes. Mm. So they're, yeah, it's sort of like the consent, you know, uh, doing the Venn diagram. They're only using the intersection of the three circles rather than trying to use the union of the circles to get the maximum footprint possible. Um, and that's their prerogative you know, if they if they want to just use the highest quality data, but there could be opportunity losses in terms of information. However, we already know that many administrative records have uh, errors or are incomplete in terms of race ethnicity and things of that sort. So it's a it's a it's a big gamble <laughs> at this point. Maybe in 2030 we'll have our first ever administrative record census. I don't yeah. know. But what? What do you anchor it to, though? Like, you know, I always think of the census as, like, that's the physical count that we use to validate all of our, you know, our data collection or the quality of our imputation methods. Like, it's like the census represents sort of like the true set that we use to assess all of our sort of more assumption-laden data generation methods. And without the anchor, like, I don't understand how we could do this properly. Yeah, they, uh, they actually do a couple of things. The, uh, and they've always done, Census Bureau has always done a couple of things, or always in the last several decades. Um, the first, and they've pretty much always done a post-enumeration study. So right after the census, they draw a very large sample of households and then they send people back out there to redo the forms. Hmm. And so if you have the uh, forms from the post-enumeration survey, you can compare them to the form that was submitted uh, by the respondent themselves, and they can do a comparison to establish whether people were missed uh, or the, the, 
basically the quality of the census response, self-response itself. Um, and so they can, they can do estimation that way. And in fact, they do that uh, in 2010, that's how they found out and estimated that there were, um, there were about uh, 16 erroneous enumerations, 16 million erroneous enumerations. That is hmm. duplicates or people being included that shouldn't have, or people that weren't included that, that could have been. Um, and so, so they do their due diligence with that. The problem is though, that if you are a household and you didn't submit your form for the decennial census, then you're sure as heck ain't gonna answer the door if a post-enumeration survey person comes. Mm. And so there's something called correlation bias. Like if you didn't participate in the census, then you're not gonna participate in the, um, in the post-enumeration survey and you have to take that into account. So to fill in that knowledge gap, they, uh, they also do something called the demographic analysis where they take um, uh, births and death records and migration records and immigration records and they put together counts uh, to establish whether or not people were missed uh, at the aggregate level. And that's how they found out, um, I think pretty recently, it might've been 2010 for the first time or 2000 for the first time, that historically this, the decennial census misses a good chunk, like a, several percent of uh, kids that are zero to five years old. Hmm. Uh, and uh, a lesser of a percent of kids, you know, as you go up the, the age groups. Um, and that I expect that cont to continue this time around, except except on steroids and spades type of thing, uh, uh, because of um, uh, they really don't have a good way of, of dealing with that. I mean, they said that they were going to give uh, better instructions. Well, that ain't going to work. <laughs> I mean, if, if you couldn't read the instructions the first time, you're not going to read the instructions the second time. If you didn't understand them the first, you probably ain't going to understand them the second. Um, Another aspect to all of this in terms of data quality, even among the self-responses though, is that even at this late day in the game, I mean, we still have tens of millions of households that haven't responded and we're knocking on doors right now. Um, we need to collect information as to who was in the household April 1st. So people are gonna have a really hard time with that because mm -hmm. April 1st, was during the COVID epidemic and a huge proportion, uh, not a huge, a significant or substantial proportion of households changed between March and April mm. because of the, uh, of, the, of the COVID crisis. I mean, I know in my own family, I had kids, uh, my, my nieces and nephews, one came from San Francisco, one came from New York City and they both came back to San Antonio to be with the parents and they're still there right now. So, you know, what does that mean? Do they get counted April 1st there uh, at in San Antonio or should they have filled out a form for their residences in these other places? Um, my grandkids came in March uh, and they, they and their mom, my daughter lived with us and are still living with us now. So do, were we supposed to have been counted here in Austin, Texas, or back in Little Rock? Hmm. Um, th there, there are some real, real issues and challenges. And unfortunately, the Census Bureau has zero time 
to figure all that out because their, their data processing has been crunched enormously. They're just going to have to, they've already talked about, or they've already uh, implicitly dropped parts of their overall quality reviews that are going to be going, going into the, to the decennial census counts. Um, and so it's just going to be a big mess. There's no, no two cents or there's no way around it. It's going to be the only issue is how flawed is it? Uh, this brings to mind a couple of things. One, uh, at the American association for public opinion, polling, public opinion research. I remember you made a comment about, uh, even with proxy, the best admin records and imputation, the best quality data we can get is self-report. Uh, so it, it, it brought to mind the, the need for, uh, the enumeration and the forms. Um, so, and, and also brought to mind that you were, we, we kind of glanced over this, but you were also the president for APOR and you're also the incoming president for ACASA. So I, I wanted to make sure that we added that to you, to your, uh, mm -hmm. biography and, and, and we didn't, uh, gloss over that. Um, but it also it also reminds me of another anecdote about admin records. I was re reading reviewing a report about early, uh, premature deaths, and they had the premature deaths by race. I was like, uh, "Well, how do you know the race of someone who died? Obviously, they didn't <laughs> they didn't fill out that report." Um, <laughs> and they said, "Well, typically, it's a person who fills out the birth certificate. I mean, the person who fills out the death certificate fills out the race, and that's usually the the funeral director or or you know the attending physician or or, or some, somebody of that nature." And I like the funeral director and like, yeah, you know, what happens with the funeral director is, you know, the neighborhood you die, they're probably going to infer uh, your race or ethnicity based on the majority neighborhood there. So if you're a Dominican and you die in a Puerto Rican neighborhood and your last name's Ortiz, uh, you're probably going to be Puerto Rican uh, based on where you died. Um, so that was pretty concerning when you think about um, the statistics based on uh, admin records and, and vital stats. Um, so that's just something to consider that, you know, you know, the best uh, information that you can provide is information that, you know, as opposed to imputation or admin records and, you know, 60 minutes and other people have talked about like credit scores and how, you know, you have record uh, errors on your credit score and other uh, errors uh, based on admin records, but it kind of underlies the need for, um, uh, uh, self enumeration. I mean, self completion, uh, self response, or enumeration. Because uh, all these other uh, methods, the gold standard is still your self report because you know yourself better than anybody else. Here, yeah. here. Uh, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. So, what I have a question for both of you. So, if you enumerate what you think is going to be the sum total of all of these problems, like who's going to be undercounted, and how bad do you think it's going to be? Um. Well, right now we're at risk of everyone being undercounted. <laughs> the, the right, right. <laughs> um, because uh, the accuracy of the census is going to boil down to whether or not the people that weren't counted, that should have been, um, were, uh, and they, let me rephrase that. The, the, the bottom line is going to be whether the people not counted and imputed are going to uh, make up for, for the losses. Um, and I think there's going to be a net undercount. There's always duplication. Uh, uh, I was worried that, um, you know, like in 2010, the duplications and the people that were un net undercounted, so there was a hole in the count, they canceled each other out. 
And so the, the Census Bureau, uh, you know, started waving and said, this is the best census ever because we came within 0.036% of our independent estimate of the total population. Well, that's only because the duplicates counteracted the people that, that were not, that were undercounted. Um, it's gonna be much worse this time around. I think there are going to be many, many, many more people undercounted than duplication. I do think there's gonna be plenty more duplications because they're not gonna have the time to do the due diligence to identify them and pull them out. Mm -hmm. um, but the undercounted folks are going to be the, among the hard to count. It's gonna be the, the Latinx population, uh, African-Americans, young children, people that tend to be renters and move around a bit, mm -hmm. um, Native Americans, uh, group quarters and homeless folks. Um, I, think, I think those are gonna be the historical hard to count populations, uh, immigrant populations, of course, are the historical, historically undercounted uh, populations are going to be the ones that are heavily undercounted this time around. I don't think that the Census Bureau is up to the task of imputing accurately uh, the ethnicities and the races of the individuals that simply didn't submit a Sure. And then if you look at the Census Bureau research, uh, after 2010, they commissioned research to figure out what are the areas where the self-response was lower. Uh, and what they found were uh, areas where, as uh, Rob said, areas where renter-occupied units were higher, areas where uh, the ages 20, 18 and 24 were higher, female head of mm -hmm. households, areas where uh, non-Hispanic white was higher, um, areas where... Um, uh, I'm just reading on the list, areas where Hispanics were higher, those led to uh, a drop in self-response. Uh, and that's based on 2010, and that's actually based on historical research and other research and other studies. So I don't see any reason why that would change, why uh, areas where a female had a household where no uh, second spouse, where a spouse isn't present, why that would, it, uh, that something would change in those areas would actually increase self-response. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and that's the research that they're using to plan, that they use to plan their media, plan uh, their media and use to actually boost their um, enumeration efforts. So uh, based on that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, hold the, the line that that's, those, those are gonna be the areas where self-response is gonna be lower again. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But and I'm also gathering from you guys, like part of the problem is just gonna be that the data is gonna be junkier. It's just going to be lower quality, and that in and of itself is is a loss. Uh, that is that is a lot, and unfortunately, by design, that has to be the starting point for the next ten years of population projection. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be a mess for twenty twenty, and it's going to be a mess all the way through twenty thirty. Well, uh, digging deeper into the issues you discussed, and what, I think one of the terms that you uh, specifically uh, used. And stop me if I'm wrong. I think you said guesstimating uh, the non-citizen, the non-citizenship, non-citizen counts. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because again, to my knowledge, I don't know of a um, validated method of estimating uh, non-citizens at a low-level geography. Uh, but could you talk a little bit more about uh, why ASA had a concern about these uh, the need to apportion by citizen versus non-citizen? Uh, yes, they, they, there were uh, a couple of issues. Um, the accuracy issue and the methodology issue, 
uh, actually wasn't as much as a, of a concern. Um, they, I mean, you, there are statistical methods to take administrative records that have address-based information, and you can create essentially a registry of individuals uh, where for maybe 90% of the population, you know whether they're a citizen or not. And then the issue is statistically estimating the balance that you don't know. Uh, that's just strictly methodological, strictly objective. And if you had to do it, you had to do it. And guess what? The Census Bureau has, has to do it. The, the bigger issue is the concern that um, the Census Bureau is supposed to gather data for statistical purposes. And uh, creating a essentially a registry uh, that's used to then uh, do counts at the block level of citizens can, can be used nefariously by uh, enforcement agencies for things like, you know, where, where should we be planning our ICE raids or our investigations, you know, for undocumented immigrants, things of that sort. And uh, that potential and the perception, even if it isn't real, is enough to do two things. One is have a dampening effect on the immigrant community in terms of filling out the census form. But secondly, and, and uh, also important to consider, is that it, it disparages the, a federal statistical agency who's supposed to be transparent and do things that are for statistical purposes. And uh, in a real sense, there is no statistical purpose for creating a registry of citizens. Um, and, and that's pretty much what's being called for. And, and that's, that's a big problem. Uh, you know, I failed to mention uh, earlier that um, there's also been a directive from the White House in terms of a memorandum, if I recall correctly, to develop estimates of undocumented immigrants in the country and to include those with the census counts. And that is just absurd uh, from my perspective. Um, it, well, first of all, methodologically, if it could have been done, it would have been done already. I mean, because that's of, of a policy uh, uh, type of, of interest, but there, the, the notion of even putting it out there in this current climate, policy climate, is, is basically you know, a final nail on the coffin screaming to uh, the immigrant community, don't you dare fill out a census form, <laughs> um, because it's, it's yet again another effort to, um, to, uh, to both dampen participation, and it also is reflective of a federal statistical agency that's supposed to be gathering information for the common good, and there's nothing good that can come out of that type of calculation and counting. And I, I would add, I don't think it's unfounded. The uh, Census barrier, uh, Barriers Attitude and Motivation Study found that privacy is a concern for completing the census. So, that, so that's uh, CBAMS, the census own research found that privacy is a concern. Um, but just to restate what you're saying, you're, you're saying, uh, uh, or if I'm a sense correctly, uh, the ability to count uh, how many citizens in the uh, at a block level 
that methodologically that is something that could be done at an accurate level. It's the ability to count the undocumented uh, undocumented residents is something that is not uh, has been proven to be done at, at a accurate level. Uh, correct, but both of them are um, are not things that that we believe the Census Bureau should be doing because of the the notion that they the 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 outputs could be used for enforcement as opposed to for statistical purposes. We talked about how uh, I think in, in uh, the uh, the general public would understand how the census relates to apportionment, how many congressmen or congr uh, congressional members uh, each area gets and how much funding or, or formula funding each uh, uh, area gets. But how does the census relate to uh, broader issues uh, in a community? Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, certainly. Uh, we, we all rely on information. I mean, we're a society that is now data dependent. And um, organizations, you know, uh, CBOs, et cetera, um, or community-based organizations, cities, local areas, counties, uh, even food banks, we all do our community needs assessment. If we don't have a, an accurate assessment or count of the population in those particular areas, then things like needs assessments are off. We don't know who the people are uh, as accurately as we need to uh, in order to, uh, to serve them properly. Schools, we don't know which schools really should have the uh, English, uh, alternative to English uh, classes or teachers. Um, we don't, we can't properly uh, prepare for who's, how much vaccine should be, uh, COVID vaccine should be sent out to different neighborhoods uh, because we don't have accurate counts of, of people in neighborhoods. Um, there, there are issues like that. And um, the, uh, all of that reinforces uh, this notion of structural racism because structural racism and, uh, and the society we live in are things that are unconscious. We just, we do them without thinking that there are implications that disproportionately harm people of color. And if you are allocating resources and you're not giving a community what it actually deserves uh, as far as funding or education resources uh, or you know, health clinics or access to care or roads, access to, to public transportation, you are essentially discriminating against that community. And that's what an uh, unfair census does. It basically reinforces that underlying um, racist uh, structure that, uh, that we have now, are, are now in a much more real way dealing and acknowledging, dealing with and acknowledging and uh, so that is why we need to really have open eyes about how participation in the census and realizing that civic duty that exists both for non-citizens and citizens, documented and undocumented, actually benefits the community and benefits those, those folks. Uh, unfortunately, with a flawed census, I fear that all we're gonna be doing is reinforcing um, a system that is has been created to op when it's uh, 
that operationalizes uh, the uh, a, a systemic racist society. Uh, a follow-up to that is, why can't uh, a private business just come back after the census and fix these counts? Uh, it's a tough thing to do. And I imagine that some folks will be trying to do that. I expect uh, uh, Joe Salvo in New York City to be uh, trying to create corrected uh, corrected counts. Um, I, uh, it, it, is, it is a task that I think is beyond any private company. Um, it's gonna be huge, it's gonna be massive, it's gonna be interpenetrating in all communities. Uh, I don't think it's something that can be fixed from a private organization. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Thank you to Rob Santos from the Urban Institute. And a very special thank you to Joshua De La Rosa from Queens College for making this episode happen. Hope you can come back again, Josh. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Socianix, and on Facebook, at the Annex Sociology Podcast. The Annex is a production of the Queens Podcast Lab. To learn more, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Music is by Lena Orsa. On behalf of my co-host, Josh De La Rosa, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.